And returning now to that developing story at Waikiria Prison. It's in lockdown after rioting prisoners started a fire in an exercise yard. A oh, standoff that began 28 hours ago has left parts of Waikiria Prison smouldering and damaged beyond repair. A short time ago, a group of inmates were on the roof refusing to surrender. And the situation is still unfolding as we go to air. While most of New Zealand was on holiday over summer, Waikiria Prison in the Waikato was on fire. A six-day standoff, one of the biggest and longest in recent New Zealand history, with two fiercely opposed narratives. 2020 in Aotearoa, you know, everybody must be treated like a human being and not an animal. So that's, that's their plea. I want to emphasise the actions by the men exposed them other prisoners, our staff and emergency services to significant danger. There is no excuse for what these, the things that these men have done. 17 prisoners took part in the uprising. One surrendered on the fourth day, with the others following suit two days later. But while the excitements died down, this is not over. There are now three investigations going on, as well as a High Court civil rights case by the prisoners against the Attorney-General and Corrections, and other claims against the Crown and the Waitangi Tribunal. Kia ora, I'm Jessie Chang, and today on The Detail, Waikiria Prison's role as a flashpoint for public debate about prisons. It was hard to see what was going on which is unusual for television news because you're normally always showing things. So you're relying on what people are telling you. But, yep, on one side, corrections who can send us all the statements they want and do all the stand-up press conferences they want, and that's all fine. How do you get the inmate story? How do you get their side? That's Kim Baker-Wilson, the one news reporter who covered the uprising at Waikiria Prison when it broke out at the top jail section on the 29th of December last year. It's... um. A really hard spot to cover for that, for anyone that's been there. There's uh, a long road and then it quickly turns into a, a thou shalt not pass here type barrier checkpoint situation. And you can't actually see too much from the road at all. We could see uh, smoke some distance away. It was quite a long way away from where we could be. So we could tell there was a fire and tell there was destruction but couldn't see the actual flames. It wasn't until late on in the week that I managed to get on someone's property uh, who had a really good view of the prison from their property, uh, but that was that, that relied on them really noticing that I was doing a live cross seemingly in the middle of nowhere not related to the prison because around the prison is, is what I suspect is some kind of cell phone jamming technology. Right. Which actually spread quite far. So that's both for our live crosses and for sending our footage back. Uh, and they went, oh, hey, we noticed Kim is not close to the prison. Do you want to come onto our property? Uh, and so we took that up. Uh, so it wasn't until late in the piece for us that we were able to see just, just that massive amount of destruction and, and charred and burnt-out buildings. So it's a, it was a lot of uh, guesswork in the meantime and, and relying on what Corrections was telling us, really, about what damage there was there. Obviously, I, I think as the days went on, there was more family and whanau who were kind of around the area. What were they telling you? Yeah, I think just that they were there gave you the sense that they were scared and they were worried. They weren't local. Uh, they had driven some distance to be there. They were, they were getting what information they could from people from inside. 
but like us, it was it was really hard to get a sense of just what was happening in there and, and how this might play out and unfold. Was there a real sense that this could have ended up badly with some people dying? Yeah, I think according to the families uh, from their side, they, they were certainly worried about that, absolutely. They just did not know what was going on. Yeah, and it was a really tense, anxious time for them. And uh, some of them would, were happy to talk to us and you could see just how emotional and on edge they were. All they want is a peaceful outcome. So that they are protesting against the inhumane living conditions they're under. They're not asking for any privileges. What we've been trying to voice for them, it's just going to be the same thing. The hygiene, the reasons, it's, it's flowing thousands of miles around, Instagram and Facebook. Everyone has this corridor. Really, as the days played out, there were two conflicting stories, wasn't there? There was the correction side of things, and then there was uh, the the prisoners and, and saying stuff about the conditions of the prison and, and things like that. Can you run me through exactly what the two sides were? Yeah, co- corrections just said, you know, paraphrasing, shortening it down, that... Um, this is an okay place, everything's good uh, as it can be. But yeah, then you had the, the prisoners, what you were hearing out of there, saying things were terrible, you know, bad water, bad bedding, bad clothing, uh, bad ventilation, uh, just generally bad conditions. Uh, for us to help with that story, we had that really, really recent ombudsman report, I think from just a few months earlier. It said that while the low security areas were well maintained, the high security areas were not fit for purpose and this was seriously affecting the treatment of prisoners. Earlier I spoke to the chief ombudsman, Peter Bosher, and I began by asking him about that report. The high security unit in this prison that's old and hasn't been fit for purpose for some time. The lower low security one um, is, uh, is is manageable. The the top one has is old and in short the conditions are just decrepit and bearing on the inhumane. We had that to help us along just to talk a bit more about the conditions because it is a really old prison and a really old part of the prison, and I haven't been in there. But yeah, to have that report from someone you know, totally on the outside, independent, uh, really did help us along a bit, and to have it such a, a recent report as well. But yeah, definitely you know, two distinct signs about what was going on here. Built in 1911, Waikiria Prison is one of the oldest in the country. It's also one of the largest spread out in different sections. The top jail section where the violence broke out was one of the areas criticised by the ombudsman when officials made the unannounced visit in October of 2019. In an interview with RNZ, Corrections Chief Executive Jeremy Lightfoot acknowledged the top jail needed to be replaced and pointed to a new build underway to be completed by next year. But we haven't sat on our hands. Um, we have acknowledged that in that two-year period, there are some things we can do to improve the amenity, um, and that has included an ongoing programme of maintenance. In fact, after the standoff finally ended, Mr Lightfoot strongly rejected the allegations made by prisoners about the water. The prison is in a rural location. Water comes from a bore and through a treatment plant. The water is tested six days a week, and there have been no concerns with the safety of the water. This is communicated 
to the prisoners within the environment and our staff drink that same water. About conditions of the cells. We have taken a number of steps to improve conditions in the top jail. Those have included an ongoing programme of maintenance of cells, units and yards, which have included the repainting of some cells in the separate units and the removal of graffiti. And about the complaints process, after claims that official complaint forms were withheld from prisoners. Mr Lightfoot says corrections officers are the first point of contact, but there are other avenues. We are not aware of complaints being made by the men in relation to the conditions, and this has been confirmed in my conversations with the Chief Inspector. There is the Independent Corrections Inspectorate 0800 free call number available to prisoners. And finally, the Office of the Ombudsman. These channels are free for any prisoner to contact, with contact details readily available to individuals. You've got one side over here, this big machine, going, this is happening, this is happening, this is the way it is. But you've got that whole other side that you're not getting. So then you rely on what Fano are telling you or what uh, advocacy groups like Papa are telling you. Yeah, and it's cobbling together and trying to make it fair to everyone, those different sides and different angles and different lenses and making it into something that, that is fair to all sides. The last incident I can think of that reached this level of attention was probably Spring Hill, and that was about seven years ago. Parts of the building and one of the units there, one of the pods was set fire to, and there was general unrest within that particular unit. But from what I recall, the situation was essentially managed within the day, whereas Waikedia, the, most, uh, the recent Waikedia incident, went for about six that's Armon Tamatia, a former corrections clinical psychologist. He's now a senior lecturer at Waikato University's School of Psychology and currently leading a research project looking at prison violence. He watched events unfold over the new year with keen professional interest. This is going to sound horrible, but the project I'm leading is, is around understanding reducing prison violence. And when the jail down the road is now demonstrating a, a quite a major um, violent event, if I can put it that way, from a research point of view, this is uh, going to be of high, high degree of interest to us as researchers. Mm. And that's not to trivialise, of course, the experiences of people who live through that. Typically, violence is really caused by any one thing, even in domestic situations, on the street or any kind of place where, uh, or even on the sports field, for example, any place where violence kind of occurs, it's really down to one particular thing. It might be an incident that sparks off a, a conflict, but often there's a, a number of underlying things going on. Prisons, in my view, are no exception. As a part of research, you did go into Waikiria Prison about a month before the the standoff took place, right? Yes, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. What did you find? Well, I, interesting question, and I certainly can't comment underwater, unfortunately. Um, uh, what we do know with a place like, for example, the Remand, uh, and this is uh, one of the interesting things about prisons is the structural differences, even within the same complex. So for a place like Waikidia, you have camps down on the ground, which is you know, quite a separate part of the jail from where remand or the up top part was. So those units, for example, tend to be quite open. There's a lot, lot more movement. The prisons and staff have access to green spaces there. 
In fact, many of the prisoners at Waikidia would be also working on farms as well. So, it's, you know, people can be busy, there's structure in a day and all those kinds of things. Uh, but as you go up top to remand, it's a, it's a different kind of environment because that's a, that's a really old building and um, it's very much concrete and steel, very little by way of access to outdoors. I mean, there are yards, but they're also quite enclosed. But yeah, but because it's also a remand site, the idea, of course, isn't for people to be there for long periods of time. Not that it makes it better, of course, but because the remand prison or that particular site, the high security kind of buildings tend to be more bleak in terms of their design because the the issue is really more around containment and um, and safety, whereas the other kinds of units are more around housing and facilitating things like rehabilitation, recreation, employment and so forth, or or occupational activity, those kinds of things. So going back to the to up top where the all the, the activity happened late last year, it's a very enclosed atmosphere, uh, it's very cloistered. On the 3rd of January this year, after talking to Māori Party co-leader Rawuri Waititi, all prisoners surrendered to corrections. Investigations into just what sparked a six-day riot at Waikiria Prison could take several months. Corrections has launched two internal reviews. The first I've commissioned to be undertaken by the Chief Custodial Officer. This operational review will be led to identify those early areas of focus that could enable us to strengthen our systems for the long term. I expect this to be concluded within a three-month period. I have also, alongside that, conditioned a, a, commissioned a wider review. That will be under, undertaken through the office of the Chief Inspector, an independent Chief Inspector function that will enable us to consider some of the wider issues relating to this incident. The draft of the first corrections investigation is now completed. It's currently under review with its national commissioner, and the police are carrying out their own investigation. I asked Amon Tamatia what sort of impact the reviews will have. I don't know. I'm I'm one of these horrible fence-sitters who tends to reserve judgment, I guess, um, because... Yep, this was a big deal, and, and there's certainly some serious issues that will need to be addressed uh, from what went down late last year in order to help us understand and prevent future such instances, whether that's at the level of managing things on the floor, as they say, at the unit level, right through to broader policy. Yep, there's a lot we can learn from Mykedia, um, and um, I'll be really interested to see what comes out of the reviews. Uh, but one thing I've been aware of, certainly in my journeys with this project, just so we're clear, I'm not paid by corrections, so I'm not here to sell corrections, right po tama. But one thing I'm certainly aware of is um, a number of initiatives, uh, and this is before Waikidia was a thing, had been in, been developing for some time. For instance, the national strategy, let's not forget that, Hawkeye which um, came online uh, sort of mid to late 2019. And that's been a very overt, a very Māori-centred, whānau-friendly, humanising philosophy of uh, prisoner and offender management. When I was at the department, I, I saw a number of strategies come and go, but there's something been very, very different about Hawkeye It's still early days, but it signalled a number of quite different philosophical turns, I think, for how we should be thinking about um, the work that goes on in, in prisons in New Zealand. I think it's been a brave statement, actually. The new strategy, Hawkeye Rangi, aims to cut the proportion of Māori in prison from 52% to 16% to match the Māori population. 
Inmates will have more phone calls and visits with their families and kaupapa Māori programs and therapies will be introduced at every prison. After the Waikere uprising, though, the effectiveness of Hōkairangi has been questioned. One prisoner involved in the standoff, whose words have been voiced, told RNZ the strategy, which aims to drastically reduce the Māori prison population, isn't working. We hear about this Hōkairangi strategy, but we don't say it. There is no programme. There is no rehabilitation. It's lock us up, put you in a yard full of gang members and they'll let you out. And they expect us to change. Experts say the unrest was the result of a failure by government to address systemic racism across society. Like any seismic shift in attitude and um, staff behaviour and by extension prisoner behaviour, there's going to be resistances, there's going to be uh, a whole lot of kickbacks on this that um, uh, will just have to play out before we realise the full extent of how effective those changes will be. You know, I still think it's early days. We're talking about a 100 plus year old justice system, correction system. Um, we can't expect, um, you know, with all the, all the baggage and issues that that brings with it, we can't expect that to turn around overnight. But I think that the current strategy is, is radical in so far as its intent. Um, in terms of its effect, we'll see. We'll see how that plays out. 17 men were charged with arson and disorder-related offences over the standoff and are now going through the court system. 16 of them have filed their own claims against the Attorney General and the Chief Executive of Corrections in the High Court for a variety of breaches. And 14 prisoners, who are Māori, also have claims against the Crown and the Waitangi Tribunal. Meanwhile, public debate over Waikiria and prisons in general has intensified. I think for so many of us it just wasn't on our radar before, was it? I mean, we have all those reports from the Ombudsman and the like talking about the conditions at Waikiria Prison, but I don't remember that being in the news. I'm sure it probably was, but, you know, it wasn't a thing in the back of our minds, was it? Uh, So, yeah, this certainly thrust it all onto the to the radar for so many of us and made us pay attention and uh, see and, and listen to, to what the concerns and the conditions were like in there. And I, I think definitely if it wasn't for that action, then, then so many of us wouldn't have known what it was like in there for these people. Mm. So a bit of a flashpoint. Mm. Mm. Uh, yeah, and then you had... Yeah, that's a good way to describe it. You had uh, an advocacy groups like uh, People Against Prisons, Aotearoa. Their line was that, hey, it's been like this for so long. We warned you this was going to happen. This was absolutely going to happen at some stage, and now here we are. So, yeah, it, it did put a lot of that there for us to see and hear. I think for some, blame for violence rests squarely on, on the individual and what the individual brings to the to the encounter, whether these were young folk who um, had pre-existing histories of violence and and all kinds of distorted views about how the world should work and you know and, and, and so that becomes a certain kind of trope if you like about how folk might think about prison violence that it's actually down to individuals that, that that may that may be the case who knows but on the other hand some would say well actually it's the institution's fault the riot was a symptom of a much more um, insidious kind of situation. So um, some, especially those who don't believe in, in the idea of prisons, for example, may put that argument forward and say, well, um, this is what you get when you have these um, kind of colonial institutions which put our people away in large numbers. This is what you get. And, and some might even say this is what we deserve as a result of that. I don't hold that view personally, but you know that's a view that might be put out there. 
And then another way of thinking about it is actually just even how we talk about it. And one thing that did kind of interest me was the languaging. So the first few days we were talking riots, suddenly we're talking protests, which is a very different way of thinking about the same kind of incident. For sure. Um, different, different connotations. Kind of moral implications and connotations, that's right, which which come off from that. So what what do you think that means then? Because if, if we were using the word like riots and then turning into protests does that is that an indication of public sentiment do you think uh certainly two things jump out at me one is that the issues are complex uh, in the first instance and secondly that not everyone holds the same view that there are uh, there's room for differing perceptions of that behavior and what what that means for people like the the water thing that conversation certainly supported the idea that, that there was a protest to be made here. And, and if, if, if there's going to be a prison protest, as mentioned before, it's typically around prison conditions. And it's not just bad conditions because there are bad conditions all over. Prisons are um, renowned globally as, as not being wonderful places to be in. But there's a difference between bad conditions and wrongly bad conditions. Mm. And it's um, often a, a, a context that can promote and provoke uh, these kinds of actions. There's the old adage, you know, it takes a village to to raise a child, but conversely, it also takes a, a community to reintegrate people as well. And um, and in some parts of of New Zealand, I'd say that that journey is is probably relatively hassle free, but in a lot of places, it's definitely not. We have many folk who are quite unwell in our um, correctional system. If we think of prisons like schools and hospitals, these are institutions of care. We put our children through schools. We put people through hospitals, if there's a need for people to be to go to hospital for medical treatment or whatnot, we expect a modicum of care in those institutions. So we have high trust in our schools. Um, we have high trust in our hospitals, uh, I, I would think. Do we have the same level of trust in our prison system? And I would suggest probably not. That's it for today. I'm Jessie Chang. Thanks to Kim Baker-Wilson and Armon Tamatia. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can find us too. This episode was produced by Alexia Russell and engineered by Alex Aylett-McMillan. Ka kite. <laughs>